Welcome to another episode of Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Selena Todd, a writer and professor of modern history at Oxford University. She writes about class, inequality, working class history, feminism, and women's lives. Her new book, Snakes and Ladders, The Great British Social Mobility Myth, published this month by Shadow and Windows, charts the myth and reality of social mobility in Britain from the 19th century to the present through the words and experiences of ordinary people. It reveals the experiences of those who climbed the social ladder and those who tumbled down it. And it also asks how and with what effects social mobility became a tenacious dream for successive generations. I welcome Selena Todd to Savage Minds. I'm most excited about your book because this is something not just today in the demise of the left not talking about class issues, but also in this coronavirus era of class being bizarrely ignored. One thing I've noticed in my home of New York, the fact that the last people considered in the coronavirus measures and even in many countries not at all considered, are renters. It blows my mind that Italy waited nine months to get to it, that in New York State, students have advocated forming unions to do rent strikes, but nothing formal has been laid out aside from, you can pay us back in the future as if, as if people will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And your book examines this the myth and reality of social mobility. And as an American, you see, we were taught that our culture is the only socially mobile one on the planet and that your country, Britain, is the most rigid of countries for zero social mobility, where class is entrenched, it's practically tattooed upon you, and there is no way to move. But your book takes this up in a sense, not directly, but it it argues against this notion that society is necessarily all that immobile. Uh, Yeah. So one of the things that that studies of social mobility have have shown over the last 20, 30 years, really, is that is that most uh, Western societies have been very socially mobile over the last 150 years. So the, the big debate really has been about how many people are going up and how many people are coming down. And and in a way, what I took issue with was the fact that that debate really just focused on a set of statistics which tend to um, uh, foreground male experience. So when sociologists came up with a way of measuring social mobility, which they did in the 1970s, and which is still the measure that's used today, they based it very much on the male career trajectory and in fact, uh, John Goldthorpe, very eminent sociologist um, based in the UK, who came up with this measurement, um, one of the things that he argued was that, I mean, he acknowledged that women couldn't really be counted in this model, because what the model does is to look at where a man is about midway through his life, and then look at where his dad was about midway through his life, and then measure the distance between the two. And, and in the Goldthorpe scheme, every occupation is allocated to one of five or seven classes. Now, of course, for women, the situation is much more complicated. Uh, Partly it's harder to trace them over time because they change their names, but also because of childbirth, many women have very interrupted career trajectories. Um, But also by looking at women, what we learn is that social mobility is not this very straightforward linear process that of course, you you just mentioned housing there, 
that housing counts, that consumption counts, um, but that also that social mobility can't really be seen as something that you count as something that happens or doesn't happen to an individual. Because one of the things that, that I'm really interested in in my work is who is it who facilitates that social mobility? And by using a lot of personal testimonies, I do use statistics, but they're the backbone of the book really. And then the, the book foregrounds experience by using personal testimonies ranging from the 1880s to the present, what we see is that more men than women consistently experienced um, higher levels of upward mobility. That is even in periods where more women were going up the ladder than more men, women tend to stay around the middle. It's men who get to the top. And that behind those men are always women. And it's either um, uh, sisters, for example, in poorer families who in the earlier part of my period are losing out on education so that a family can allocate that kind of scarce resource to a son, um, or it's wives helping husbands to climb the ladder by being a kind of company wife who keeps the family together as they have to commute around the country as the husband gets more and more promotions um, and has to go to different firms and so on. So, so it, it's, it's really trying to complicate the story of social mobility um, in that way as well, by saying, well, hang on, what happens if you look at society as a whole? What, what does it do to, to everybody really to have this idea that, that the dream should be to sharpen your elbows and get up the ladder? And are you measuring mobility on the basis of salary, of residents, ability to purchase a home? How is that measured? Yeah, it's a really good question. So sociologists used to primarily use occupation. Um, and now, uh, more recently, economists have argued that income should be used. And, and, and they make a great point, which really comes out in the personal testimonies in my book, which is you know, that actually more and more jobs have fancy sounding titles in, in Britain and the US and in Western Europe since the 1990s, the proportion of jobs that are classed as managerial has really gone up. But one of the things that I found in the interviews that I did and in the uh, oral histories that I used is that many people, particularly women actually, uh, were very skeptical when they finally got into these roles about quite how much power they carried because most managerial jobs today are really nothing of the sort. You know, you might be managing a few people, but you've probably got no occupational pension um, you may have no security um, and your, your, your pay is not necessarily very high. So these kinds of fancy sounding job titles um, are, are something that's, that, that are very interesting to me because what they show is that we do need to look at other things like income. And yeah, housing really comes out in, in, in the book as something that really matters to people, particularly in the, in the last 20, 30 years where the housing market has just gone so crazy um, and where you know, we used to have... Um, a very high proportion of housing in the UK was council housing, social housing, public housing. Um, and that was true between the end of the Second World War, in fact, from the 1930s until the 1990s. And once that went, um, and once also regulations over banks lending mortgages disappeared, which, which it did in the 1980s, um, you get this housing market free for all. And so there's certainly the case that there are some very few individuals who make a lot of money out of housing, although very often they come from families that had some inherited wealth in any case, um, they, just, they just add to their advantage. But what you do find, particularly with those, my, my books structured generationally, and particularly the two younger generations, um, who I call Thatcher's children, who were born in the 1970s, and then the millennials who were born from uh, the 1980s onwards, 
what you find with them is, is that housing really counts because of course, even if you're in a job like medicine, if you're a young doctor um, trying to make it in a big city like London, you, you can't get on the housing ladder. So, so that really complicates things. And, and so even people who look statistically occupationally as if they're doing well, don't feel that they're doing well. And, and I think that's very important. Well, yes, I, I covered a piece for the Morning Star several years ago as a, a fellow boater myself. I was living on London's canals and rivers. And there was an onslaught uh, from about 2015 onward of professionals, not just moving on to narrow boats, but having to move on narrow boats mm. because they could not afford rent. They could not afford, including doctors, architects, lawyers, you name it. They could not afford any kind of housing. It was remarkable. And um, this, this makes me wonder then, for instance, since you cover through from the 19th century through the president, present, um, I've, you know, I interviewed Brian Barnes many years ago, who's a famous uh, muralist. He did the Battersea uh, sea mural um, on the South Bank, uh, which has since been destroyed. But we had a really nice talk about council housing and the right to buy. And I was, you know, he was very critical about what Thatcher's policies meant for council housing. Now, what, how do you see that? I mean, within the larger scape of even today, because at the time when I interviewed him, I did the statistics, I believe the number was 48% of housing in the UK before Thatcher's um, move to privatize housing in a sense, was 48% of British dwellers were in council housing, which went significantly down at the time I interviewed Brian Barnes. What do you know about this shift? Yeah, so in, in a way, Thatcher did something really clever because what she recognized is something that, that is clear as a consistent theme and a consistent aspiration for all of the generations that I look at, which is um, a desire for more autonomy over your life. You know, the, both the ability to create security for yourself and your children, and also the, the hope of having more than just enough, the hope of having the ability to, to travel, to broaden one's horizons through education and to create something. One of the things that kept coming up for me in this book was the importance of education and the importance of, of creativity. And, and unlike lots of studies of social mobility, which as I say, purely statistical and tend to look at individuals who've gone up or gone down, I was really interested in the book in thinking about challenges to that idea of how we should structure society as a hierarchy. Um, and one of the things that I came to realize was that by looking at those who had challenged um, that notion that society should be constructed around a ladder, people like labor movement activists throughout the 20th century, people like feminists in the 1970s, um, that actually their aspirations were not that different from the kind of sharp elbowed uh, types who are often caricatured as the Thatcherites of the 1980s, because what all of them were trying to do is to create more control in the ways that they thought were best. And by the time Thatcher comes to power in 1979, um, Britain is a more equal place socially and economically, uh, and to some extent in terms of political power, because the trade unions have quite a lot of political power, um, than it has been since the, the early 1940s. But there are real problems because as that move towards equality begins to happen, 
various multinationals, various large employers um, and various right-wing politicians become very worried about the way that the balance of, of power is shifting. And, and that's where you get the kind of Thatcherite challenge to what's going on. But even before that, in the mid 1970s, um, Britain was suffering as a result of an international oil crisis. And as a result of the kind of pressure that multinationals were putting on, on, on the UK um, because of its reasonably good labor laws, the then Labour government was faced with a choice of either coming up with a radical economic plan for saving the country um, or um, taking loans from the International Monetary Fund. And those loans were taken, I think, unfortunately, because they came with a massive cost and, and, and public spending cuts were part of that cost. That was a condition laid down by the IMF. Um, and so by the, by the late 70s, people living in council housing were faced with a situation of rising rents, rents were very much out of their control, local authorities were cash strapped. And also it's, it is true that you know, Britain was still a very hierarchical place and many of the people who were in local government and were administering that housing were not living in it themselves and, and therefore weren't always that responsive to, to the tenants and to what they wanted. They, it was a very top-down model in many ways. And so when Thatcher came in and uh, it promoted the right to buy, it, many people did decide to grasp it. One of the things that my research shows is it, it less comes from a kind of unalloyed happiness than a fear of downward mobility, a fear that if they stayed in council housing, rents would continue to rise and they might find themselves in penury. Of course, unfortunately, what happened is that many of those people who bought in the early 1980s ended up in negative equity by the 1990s because of the crash in the late 1980s um, and the recession that followed. And did this buying up of council homes, I mean, as I noted, the, the statistics went from something on the order of 48% to something around 12%. It might and likely is even less today. So was the knock-on effect then that the council homes were not rebuilt? Thus, you have now in places like London and other large cities, a housing issue, a shortage of affordable housing effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that is ex that's exactly what happened because local authorities were forced really to sell off their, their houses at, at very low cost and they didn't then accrue the money to be able to build new housing stock. And since then, because uh, grants to local authorities from government have been consistently cut, um, increasingly local authorities have to make money out of developing um, the land that they own um, and selling it off to private developers. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a real problem because you end up with a situation where, as you say, there isn't very much affordable housing, but also land which was democratically owned is increasingly in a small number of private hands. Also, one thing for our non-British listeners that I found interesting and I learned about, do not laugh because I am not a historian, but it's that scene or it's those series of episodes within Downton Abbey <laughs> where the wealthy family is faced with having to let go of its land. And that's linked to something that happened in the early part of the 20th century. There was a law that made landowners, I think it had to do with inheritance of land and the way they passed the land off and the way in which, and it's also tied up in the way that national trust was given these lands because of this law. It had to do with wealthy families, uh, often landed gentry, who were then having to 
get rid of lands because they were faced with very high rates of taxation. I think that was it. It was that they were taxed extremely high at a certain point. Yeah. So yeah, what what they yeah. So what they did was they yeah, they set up the the national trust. Um, yeah, in the early part of the twentieth century, and that was um, a kind of way of yes, yeah, some extent protecting uh, the land and also keeping it in their hands. And that became even more of a kind of priority for them after the Second World War, because it's the Second World War when they begin to uh, lose their land because some of it is uh, taken over by the government um, because of the need for land on which to house and train military and so on. And then after the Second World War, um, Britain elects by a landslide a Labour government, um, the first time that, that a majority Labour government is in power. And one of the things that they do is to initiate redistributive taxation. And so many of these landed families find themselves uh, faced with having to sell off some of their land. And so what they do is they use the National Trust very often as a way of keeping hold of it, because you can remain a custodian of your big house um, while the trust takes over the land and to some extent the running of the house. And it still goes on to this day. And one of the really interesting things about it is that there's a kind of narrative of aristocratic decline um, that's that's promoted by some historians and indeed some aristocrats in terms of 20th century Britain. And it is true that their political power uh, declined to some extent, but in terms of uh, their wealth and what they were able to do, um, they were very shrewd at hanging on to it because what they began to do was to position themselves after the Second World War as the guardians of national heritage and national culture. Um, which was fairly ironic, given that they'd never had any interest whatsoever in opening up their houses or the land, much of which they'd enclosed and robbed from people in the 18th century, um, before they really needed to do it in, in the 1940s and 1950s. But out of that has, has come this kind of, this actual very recent aristocratic myth that they are guardians of a particular kind of, of, of national heritage, um, which is is an interesting way of reinventing oneself. And I think what it points to is, is something that I argue quite strongly in the book, which is that um, if you have a very hierarchical society, you shouldn't be surprised if the people at the very top of the ladder do everything in their power to cling to that perch. Um, and one of my problems with the idea of social mobility and the idea that many policymakers now promote um, which is that, oh, if we only had more socially mobile societies, they would be fairer is that there's a willful ignoring there of the fact that any society where there is social mobility is one where there are some people at the bottom. It's not an egalitarian society. Um, and you can't then criticize people at the top for opportunity hoarding because they understand what policymakers are very rarely willing to say, which is for some people to get to the top in a society where there's very limited room at the top, other people will have to come down the ladder and, th and they're not going to want to do that. And, and that I think is a real problem throughout the last century, but it's a particular problem now as we look at COVID and we look at the climate emergency, because what's clear is that we don't just need a few more women or black or brown faces at the top of the ladder. We need really new ideas about the challenges that we face in the 21st century. And that kind of innovation is not going to come simply from those at the top. So, so we have to find ways of enabling people to be more creative um, and uh, more able to make the most of their potential because because that's the only way we're going to flourish as a society in future it's the only way we're going to survive you're listening to savage minds and we hope you're enjoying the show 
please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I come from a family of Indian doctors, and so I was rather surprised to learn how many NHS clinicians, even nurses, but doctors also, who are Indian. And so, you know, your book takes up the issue of women and migrants are not at all marginal to British society. And in fact, the NHS relies on them. And as we've seen during the COVID crisis, these have been primary actors. On top of the fact, <clears throat> on top of the fact that women historically have been doing either the badly paid or the completely unpaid jobs. How do you address this in your book, especially given the fact that your book, if I'm not mistaken, is it's one of the first that is looking at women's role in social mobility for the first time? Yeah, so, so one of the things that I was really keen to do, um, it was to examine uh, the, the role of, of migrants, because there's a kind of narrative in Britain, and I think it works in other societies too, certainly in the United States, about the, the idea of, of very often certain groups of migrants are identified as showing what you can do if you just work really hard. Um, and you, you mentioned there Indians, and certainly British Indians have often been cited as a group who've done extremely well. What was really interesting for me is that actually when you drill down into people's experiences and you look at where they came from and their, their longer family history, it's clear that in fact for most migrants coming to the UK over the 20th and early 21st centuries, the people who end up going into professional jobs are very often those who come from families that are relatively wealthy or relatively well-educated um, back home, quotes and quotes. And that usually takes two generations, however. So most migrants, particularly um, uh, migrants from the Indian subcontinent, from the former colonies, really, of Britain, end up um, in very low-paid, low-skilled jobs when they first arrive, even if they've come over for more education or training, it's often very difficult for them to escape those, those low paid jobs. And that's partly because they're often uh, coming over in response to the government recognizing that they need people to do those jobs. So you mentioned the NHS and you know, there's a British journalist, Gary Young, who writes very movingly about um, the way that we really need to own the migrant story within the NHS as part of um, uh, the narrative of what makes Britain great, right? If anything does because it was very often Irish, black, Asian women who were working as hospital cleaners, as hospital auxiliaries, who then made it possible for some white Britons to move a step or two up the ladder. Now their children sometimes did go on to become doctors. Um, and one of the things that I show is that yes, it is the case that many migrant families were really striving for their children to get uh, that degree of education because the additional obstacle of racism meant that there was this often great desperation to get their children out of working class jobs, allied with a kind of sense that, you know, you need to make sure that migration was worth the effort by trying to get the kids up the ladder. Um, 
That, however, places a huge amount of pressure on some second generation migrants, which is overlooked by the kind of celebratory narrative. Yet some of whom don't want to become doctors or go into finance or other jobs that will make money, but, but find that their choice is very limited by, by what their families consider to be quote unquote successful. But also they're a minority, you know, and the thing is that very often what happens is that um, British Indians or British Chinese are compared with white British and it is possible within certain social groups to see that some groups of second generation migrants do quote unquote better end up in more lucrative jobs or get more degree level qualifications than white Britons but for most that's absolutely not the case and, and one of the things that the book really tries to, to point out is that generation after generation women and migrants tend to end up at the bottom of the ladder in large numbers they they are left to do the dirty work, the essential work, but work which is never remunerated properly. It, that's not to say, though, that they're victims. You know, like, as I say, you know, one of the things the book looks at is then what strategies they use to get their children a rung or two higher up the ladder. But it's also the case that because of the situation in which they find themselves, um, women and migrants, often overlooked in histories of labour radicalism, for example, are actually at the forefront of some of the campaigns and initiatives that aim to question this way of thinking about society. So women were really influential in establishing the adult education movement, which came out of the labor movement in Britain in the early 20th century with the Workers' Education of Association, still survives today. They were also, of course, incredibly influential in second wave feminism, which helped to give birth to all kinds of initiatives from women's centers to women's studies teaching in schools and in polytechnics. Um, and, and, and through doing that, they not only expanded their own opportunities, but expanded opportunities for future generations by trying to open up education and trying to open up opportunity. With, with migrants, one of the, the, the really memorable examples is the Indian Workers Association, which is established by migrants um, in Britain as a kind of trade union, but also a political and social association um, to assist British Indians who find that they face racism from trade unionists um, as well as from employers. And they achieve a huge amount in the 50s, 60s, 70s in terms of workers' rights, pay and conditions. Um, and then of course, you've got the Grunwick dispute in the mid 1970s where British Asian and first generation Asian migrant women um, working at, at a film processing plant in, in Southall in London um, go on strike um, for trade union recognition and for better, uh, for, better, for better paying conditions. And they don't win, but what they show is that it's possible to build a kind of mass movement of solidarity uh, in, in which brown women take leading roles. So incredibly inspiring. Oh, I haven't heard of that. I will definitely look up that story. Well, your, your book examines how socialists and feminists argue for the creation of a more equal society rather than for a merit meritocratic one. You maintain that the attempts to establish meritocracy have failed. So this makes me think of both, I would like to ask you why, but in the scope of our, our lovely friend, Jordan Peterson, who would argue that women are not getting higher salaries for two reasons. One, because <clears throat> they don't demand them. And secondly, because of nature, nurture, what have you, we are naturally drawn to jobs that in fact find us in a nurturing role.
Yeah, um, it, it's a kind of lean-in feminism, isn't it? That the sort of idea that um, uh, we just need to get with the program um, and 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 get on. And I'm skeptical of that for two reasons. And and one relates to your latter point about the idea of women in in caring roles. Um, it's clear that many women do want to go into, into caring roles. And, and perhaps that's something that we should be encouraging more men to do as well, because one of the things we're seeing in the pandemic is that actually uh, altruism and being involved in caring work is something that's really essential for society. We need people who are in those kinds of jobs. It's also the case that there have been studies um, ever since the 1940s about what gives people job satisfaction. And for both women and men, um, being able to offer altruism is something which gives a great deal of the population um, uh, well-being. So it's really good for us as individuals as well. And, and what's often overlooked in the model that you're alluding to there is that there's absolutely no scientific reason why someone who is a social care worker, who is going into um, the homes of older people and looking after them, should be paid less than a banker. It's just that we have politicians and we have an elite who believe that we should reward wealth hoarding more than we reward looking after each other. And that's something that we can challenge. And, and the good news about history is it shows it has been successfully challenged to some extent in the past. So the, the post-war, Second World War welfare state established by the Labour government of 1945, one of the things that they did was to expand room at the top um, and to say, well, actually, we're going to make, for example, um, uh, we're going to make nursing um, better paid and we're going to give it more security. Now, strong trade unions are absolutely essential to that. And, and it's the case that nurses pay and professionalisation accelerated in the 1960s when more and more very often upwardly mobile nurses from working class backgrounds entered nursing and began to demand more rights. So we have to have the ability to have strong trade union um, association. But I think the other thing about that model of, you know, women need to be demanding pay rises in the, in the way that men do. Do we want to live in the kind of world that we have now with the kind of values that, that, that we have now where we're facing a massive climate emergency? I think that the model where we all kind of just demand more um, isn't really a very good one for going forward. And, and that's my real scepticism with lean in feminism as well, that um, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference if you get a few more women to the top of the ladder, right? I mean, it makes it makes a bit. Um, it is the case, you know, and I use examples in the book, like say the, the BBC, when that was first established in the early 1920s, um, they, they weren't able to, to get the male Oxford and Cambridge graduates who, who Lord Reith, the first director general of the BBC really wanted because it was a new enterprise. It was too risky for those graduates to consider entering. So they got women. And those women tended to recruit other women, right? So, so they did do women a favor. However, they, they all ended up being kind of kicked out of senior positions by the mid 1930s when the Oxbridge educated men realized that the BBC was actually onto a good thing and decided that they'd prefer those posts. So, so getting a few women to the top doesn't necessarily bring lasting gains, but also, and, and this again is my problem with both social mobility and with identity politics, is if we're constantly obsessing about having quotas on boards um, for uh, black people or for women or whichever other group, we fail to think about what the firm to which that board is attached is really up to. And if what it's up to is asset stripping or replicating inequalities or going out and fracking, 
then that's no good for the majority of women and the majority of black people in the world. So, so we have to really think not only about who people are, but also what they do. When you refer to women, just to be clear, we're talking about people who probably have vaginas? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, in, the, in the UK, the, the law is that, that, that males and females are biological sexes. And, and yeah, that, that's true of the history as, as well. Yeah. The idea, though, that we are now seeing with last week's announcement about the census that's to take place this year in the UK, that there's another addition to the information being collected. Now, I was impressed by the way you gained the data for your book. And this involved going to an archive that collects reflections from volunteer writers. And it also, I presume, holds personal testimonies. Yes. You are able to identify who is female and not by virtue of how the records are kept, I presume? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It's so important. And I've been involved in the campaign here to keep um, big data sets like the census collecting data on the basis of sex as well as gender identity. I think that gender identity is really important clearly to a, a number of people uh, these days and so it's absolutely right that that data should be collected. But yeah we do need data on sex because it's true not only now but also historically that say the, the pay gap between men and women has been very large and yes, certainly I wouldn't have been able to make uh, some of the claims that I'm able to make in the book about the differences, say, um, in women and men's educational participation. You know, I mentioned earlier, one of my arguments is that in poorer families, it's often men who are given priority um, for education, which is understandable because then their earning prospects are better. So it's not about families just being inherently sexist. They're shaped by the capitalist economy in which, in which, in which they're trying to survive. Um, and yet we have to have um, sex-based data in order to, to draw on that. And by looking at that sex-based data, what we see is that um, by virtue of their uh, actual or potential role as mothers, women have been treated um, and have experienced life very, very differently from men. And that the forms of exploitation and the forms of liberation struggle in which they have engaged have been very different from, from the male models and the male experiences. So yeah, it's really crucial. And the reason why I got involved in debates about um, how we should define women legally and also um, uh, what it's okay to talk about and what it's not okay to talk about in terms of sex and gender identity, springs precisely from my from my research, which I think is something that my critics often don't necessarily uh, realize. But if you're if you're a historian of women, you see that this stuff stretches far back. And also you see how important it is to be able to identify patterns, because it's through identifying patterns that we can also identify how change happens and how things improve. So to take one example, um, it's very clear that in the 1970s, the um, proportion of women who get educational qualifications increases rapidly. And if you drill down into that, what you discover is that it was the expansion of adult education and university education for mature students, which really helped that to happen. So that tells us something really significant and really hopeful about how we can expand opportunities for women and about the fact that while we need to concentrate on young people, we also need to think about what happens to women after they've had children, because it's often at that point that they might think about returning to education or want to change direction in their lives. And, and in order to do that, we need data over a long period of time. 
So something like the census that is collected every 10 years, if that's collecting data on sex, that's a fabulous, really exciting resource for us over time. If it stops collecting data on an important variable like sex, then that disrupts that data. And, and we're never able to, to, to recapture it. And, and that's why I've been so heartened really at, at, the, at the fact that so many social scientists have come out and very robustly supported the idea that the census should, should continue to collect data on males and females. Yes, and it would be also interesting to see if by an individual's changing his or her gender, that would actually have any effect on social mobility whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we don't know that at the moment. And, and that's one of the points that um, uh, a good friend of mine and colleague, Alice Sullivan, who works much more with big quantitative data sets than I do, it's one of the points that she's made really powerfully that actually the problem with not collecting data on sex and gender um, is that we then end up in a situation where we would simply be talking about trans women as being the same as women. And, and, and that's a real issue because then we don't know what particular problems and obstacles and discriminatory practices trans women might be facing, right? And so, so in order to know that, we have to know what someone's natal sex is and what their gender identity is, because then we can look at, for example, is the experience of trans women different to that of trans men? And those are really important questions. Um, so, we, so we do need robust data on that. And, um, and, I, and I think that that's something that, that you know, really should be collected. And, and, I, and I really hope that it will be. I wanted to get at a claim of your book that you make that ambition doesn't cause mobility. And you also note how upward, upward mobility increased after the Second World War. So here's the thing. American economists often make the claim that the welfare state has actually stopped ambition, putting a cork on innovativeness and production. Your book states just the opposite. Can you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a hopeful story because, yeah, there's this kind of idea, isn't there, that, you know, it's individual aspiration that takes you to the top. What I found over and over again is that none of the generations I looked at from those born in the late 19th century to those born in the 1980s and 90s lacked ambition or aspiration. Um, that actually the, the lack of ambition was often at the top of the ladder with politicians or others, um, the wealthy elite saying, no, no, most people are just not capable of doing what, what we do. And time and time again, you know, people have, have proved them wrong. You know, a, a century ago, um, the idea that everybody should have a free secondary education was still incredibly controversial. And now we know everybody benefits from that. And we are now rightly very anxious about what's happening to our young people that they can't access that education at the moment. So, so I think where I got to was realizing that people had unlimited potential. And what happened in Britain after the Second World War was that there was a realization of that and it didn't completely come to fruition. The government continued to embrace the idea of having a, a very capitalistic economy. However, the welfare state did lead to an expansion of room at the top because the government decided that not only were they gonna establish um, free universal education for everybody up to their mid-teens and a free national health service, but that they were going to make sure that the workers um, in those sectors were uh, you know, at least adequately remunerated and, and would have some workers' rights. And I should say pressure for that came from the bottom as well. It came from women's groups and it came from trade unions during and after the Second World War. And so the result of that um, was that people were able to climb the ladder 
But the other result, which I think wasn't so foreseen by politicians, was that the people growing up in that welfare state became very ambitious and adventurous because they were growing up knowing that they had a safety net of social security to fall back on if the risks and adventurous paths they took failed them. Um, it's not entirely the case, you know, it's, it, 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 relative inequality remained way too big in post-war Britain. But what you do see are all kinds of new flourishing ideas coming out about ways in which people might live that come from that generation who are often seen as the golden age of social mobility, those born between the 1930s and 1950s, who um, are among the socialists and feminists of the 1970s, who, who many, in many cases are, are children who did quite well out of the post-war welfare state and then look around and say, but I know the rest of my generation is capable of doing what, what I did. And I want my children to have even better chances than, than I've had. And so they then begin imaginatively to think about different ways of organizing society and, and they achieve incredible things. I mean, one of the examples that really fascinated me was law centers. So law remained in Britain, a very socially elite profession. And even in the 1960s, when government were threatening inquiries and commissions and all this kind of thing, if, if law didn't change its practices, it still remained highly elite. But the law centers, which were initiative that was set up in order to give um, ordinary people uh, easier access to legal recourse, also provided a route into training as lawyers for many women from backgrounds who, who would never have other, otherwise had that. And so for the first time, they began to break open some of those elite professions and actually question whether they should be elite professions or whether there were other ways of thinking about law um, and, and it, more democratic ways of thinking about how to participate in deciding what laws are and then how they're implemented. Um, so, so absolutely incredible. And in fact, there's a lot of data now. Um, Scandinavia, which doesn't have the kind of robust welfare state that it used to have, but certainly has more welfare measures than most other European countries. There's a lot of data that innovation and entrepreneurship is um, more widespread in those Scandinavian countries than elsewhere. Um, and, and it's because people know they've got a welfare state safety net to fall back on. Some risks will always fail and, and you need to give people that security.